Okay. We're ready to go. And now I can see you as Riddle as well. At least your name. So welcome to the first episode of this pod, the Café Con Paulo Freire podcast. Uh, we've been focusing on learning, education and other things, uh, but also on activism and how basically to get better at what we're doing, have a practical focus in all of this um, as a university center and maybe as individuals as well. We're very good at talking and thinking and reflecting on things, but also how to translate that into something practical as well. Um, so my name is Tony Mosberg. I work with education and outreach here at CMS, the Center for Environment and Development Studies um, here at Uppsala University. Um, and also it's a fun episode because we have our office neighbors. I don't know if that is the formal term, but <laughs> yeah, office neighbors uh, from this U-shaped band here at the Earth Sciences Department, the Geocentrum building, uh, and also CMS affiliate, uh, Ryan. But you all get to introduce yourself um, uh, in this round that we get to. Um, I should say something also about the episode. Um, so it's based on the conference that was held uh, mid-January uh, over at Economicum here in Uppsala, uh, the political ecologies of the far right. Um, and I asked this AI function to translate that into something more catchy. So then it was like 10 different suggestions that I remixed. I, there's a human involvement in this. But that translated into the roots of radicalism, which I think is an interesting starting point, uh, a deep dive into the ecopolitics of the far right. Um, and I wanted to maybe not to have the right, just the far, but that didn't mm. translate into a good title. Um, yeah. And we've been doing this podcast uh, and this series uh, since the autumn, but we started earlier also around uh, the Paulo Freire 100 year anniversary. Yes, so we should do a round. Um, all the sound is on, and I think we'll just go clockwise and we can start uh, with you. And basically, just a name, position, one or two sentences about the research you're doing, uh, and also why you wanted to attend the conference. All right. Um, mm. Yeah, so my name is uh, Kosma, Kosma Lechowicz. I'm a PhD student at Uppsala University at the Program of Natural Resources and Sustainable Development. I'm pretty much halfway through my PhD. I'm doing a PhD in a project called Disassembling High Carbon Imaginaries. So what that entails is that I'm looking at visions of the future uh, after coal phase out, uh, specifically in Poland. So I'm doing some interviews with uh, miners, activists, uh, and other stakeholders in mining regions. Um, so I don't do research on far-right per se, but I brush shoulders with uh, far-right populism and so on, because a lot of um, miners that I speak to, they're exposed to this um, discourse of delay and, and different kind of strategies of um, framing uh, green transition as, uh, as something that is a threat to their livelihoods. Yeah, and you had a presentation last week at the CMS Research Forum, CFO, and then you also yeah. used AI in a very creative way. You put in a quote and asked the AI to make an image out of it, which I found very interesting. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was yeah. a very interesting um, thing I got. The result, I, I put a quote by one of the miners and I asked the AI to generate an image that would represent a speaker, someone who said that, mm. and they generated a couple of images and one of them was a very sexy naked miner mm. in the mine and that's because the quote referred to connection between coal and body mm. yeah so <laughs> and images is not so good in a podcast but <laughs> but maybe we can add that somewhere or maybe yeah. later when you're finished with your phd okay um emmy please go ahead Perfect. thank you cosma i'm very sad to have missed your presentation <laughs> on that it sounds very uh, exciting but yes so i'm emmy Iversen. and i am quite a new phd student here at the department also in the division of natural resources and sustainable development. And my topic relates very much to local food systems and localism in relation to food and uh, looking into opportunities for leveraging a transition towards more local food systems in the Swedish context. And I think localism is the key term here because I think that very much relates to some of the ideas that we will discuss here today and also some of the ideas that were very much discussed during the mm -hmm. conference. Um, transitioning to the local and local nature and what that means in different contexts and in different discourses. So I think that was my main entry point into the conference. Cool. 
And uh, my name's Ryan Carolyn. I'm a former PhD student, so long as my submission goes all right. Um, and I, my, my PhD's on, uh, focuses on the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the biggest river system in Australia, the commodification of water, basically um, the implications of neoliberalism in relation to this river and how it transformed also the state and is sort of reproducing reproducing this very destructive policy, which is not helping in any way to address the ecological crisis on the river system. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Oh, and why, why I'm interested, I, the main reason I went, um, apart from the fact that I knew that people from CMS were going, is because it was in Uppsala. I'm interested in the topics, but, I mean, I wouldn't really travel to a conference. It's not really my thing, but it's in Uppsala, so it felt like a nice local thing to do. Mm. And, uh, yeah, no, it was great. I'm glad I did. Unfortunately, I was only there for one day, though, so I'm, I'll be more listening, I suspect, than talking so much today. Mm. But, uh, no, it'll be, it's a, I'm very glad to be a part of it and to hear what hear people's reflections on, on, on what they experienced. Mm. Yeah, and it was a very intensive conference uh, at least for me so um so one day is enough to to talk about for for hours at least for me okay uh, now we're going to transition uh, over to you as well asril you get to introduce yourself and just hang on like two seconds um before i switch over to you great uh, to meet with nice bunch of people that share similar concerns my background is as an agricultural engineer my PhD in sociology, dealt with uh, far right with focus on Trumpism. Um, in that sense, I'm concerned, was and I'm concerned, with the cultural war being launched, waged by the far right, and also <clears throat> hinting in in climate denialism. And I'm doing now a second PhD in Cordoba in Spain. Um, it's similar to what Cosma is doing. It's now formulated as natural resources and sustainable management. But when I did the classwork, it was agroecology and sustainable development. So now liberalism has hit even the language. Um, so the project for the doctoral degree in Cordoba has to do with the project I was co-responsible in Mexico into peasant communities. And I'm looking at extensionism, agricultural extension. That is a topic that has come up at CEFO a couple of times, and I'm looking at traditional extensionism from the Freerian perspective, which is the communication of persuasion. You convince farmers, peasants, what is best for them, or you engage in dialogue, and then it's core researching, co-learning. So that's, and about the conference, I think it was greatly organized, very rich, um, inspired me a lot. And then it was um, followed by Cosmas' fantastic presentation of his PhD work. So, and we are nearing now the third year of this program, Coffees with Paulo Freire. Daniel has said what it is about. And we try to bridge this they say the contemporizing what's happening like um, in the world, uh, what is the world going to be like if Trump gets reelected, that he threatens us to do in terms of climate and so on. So I think that's uh, yeah enough. Okay, thank you, Asril. Um, so we should get into this. Um, a very primitive uh, idea for this would be to do a round, but we also want to jump into different things. So I think we just need somebody to start us off. 
in all of this. Uh, maybe if I start with a short reflection on some of the things I picked up, and then we can just do a round, but we can also jump in and, and comment and, and discuss the different things. Uh, and Asril, if you still can hear us, I think, uh, just uh, uh, you can mute, but also then just uh, raise your hand uh, or wave, and then I can just uh, uh, get you into the conversation as well. Okay. Um, there's so many different things, um, so diff- many different, um, yeah, ideas and topics and discussions. Um, I didn't talk to that many people because I felt a certain overload of ideas and other things. But I was also it was a good format that uh, you could be part of parts of the conference, but you can also listen in online. So I did listen and walked my dog and did other things. So I think it was also good for my own sanity. Um, but I think a couple of key points that was important for me, it was a very interesting um, uh, parallel session on um, Indian Hindu nationalism and how Modi, the prime minister of India, how he and his party and the nationalism that they had kind of created over the last 10 years or maybe before then but when he came into power and how the Hindu nationalism and uh, being active and an international player on climate uh, was not in opposites so climate denialism wasn't a core thing that they had integrated into the party rather the opposite so adopting a kind of um, a radical leftist language, uh, whether it's around climate justice or other things, uh, but also very actively trying to like build energy infrastructure, uh, like wind power. So one of the presentations was uh, specifically on wind power. One was on solar power, and the one that stuck with me was on the wind power power plants they were building. So it was uh, part of trying to reshape a Muslim majority part of India. So what they did was basically come in uh, and bribe or pay off or make agreements, depending on what language you want to use, with community leaders. So then they bought a piece of land that they that was part of their traditional land, but also part of the, the village and the, the community, uh, and basically put up what we would say like contemporary modern wind power plants with the add-on that at the bottom of the wind power plants, they would also build Hindu temples. So the nationalism and the climate action and all of that was kind of manifested in this merge uh, of, of different um, different things. So that was very interesting. And that th- presentation sparked uh, ideas around how do we research and study and look at climate denialism in a Swedish research context. Um, and I didn't go to the parallel session that focused on Sweden, but... Yeah, I'm from here, so I have some <laughs> insight at least into that. And how I reflected on that maybe the thing that is the core aspect of nationalism or far-right parties or activism in Sweden is not so much around climate denialism, but rather that you don't want, whether it's the big cities or specifically Stockholm uh, and these big international companies or whether it's Chinese companies to come in and build this energy infrastructure that becomes something that is from the outside. So reacting in climate science is maybe not your core thing that motivates you. It's rather resources being extracted from your local world where you live, uh, but also these kind of huge infrastructure projects manifesting what is wrong in an unjust society, but also what is wrong in the relationship between cities and rural parts in Sweden. Uh, because you could imagine a wind power plant in a Swedish context having that kind of strange add-on, not a Hindu temple, but something that was as kind of opposite to the local. Uh, but also issues around local democracy in Sweden and how if it was a local democratic issue of deciding over whether where, where resources go, uh, what happens to electricity and how it's exported or what is actually built, then the issue might be a bit different. Um, so that was one of my reflections. Uh, Asril, you have your hand up as well. Do, do you want to jump in on that or, or another reflection? You just have to hang on two seconds before we, we have to turn up your sounds. So hang on. Yeah, I want to jump on, on what you just said. And the reflection and provocation is this is exactly what we are dealing with populism. So in, in the conference, and 
out of the conference were aware that populism um, creates a very astute um, ways to channel interest like with the climate, like Modi does it in his own way. Now he's having an Indian temple on top of a Muslim um, mosque. Uh, so it's in, in Sweden, we also have similar uh, populistic moves about climate. Like when Swedish Democrats uh, supported and voted to lower tax on uh, benzene, on, on uh, uh, what makes the fossil energy uh, run in Sweden, they got more votes. So in a way, they are like uh, octopus creating channels for different segments of the population in a marketing way that we lag behind. That was one of the comments I brought uh, at, the, at the conference that we seem to run quite behind what uh, populism logic is accelerated and winning votes in Sweden, in the States, and uh, India, and all over, all over the place. So in a way, it's how to relay the knowledge, the information we produce in these privileged spaces that we call universities. How do we relate this knowledge produced with yeah, the input from society because it's subsidized by society, but then how is this related to strategies to counteract minimum to go maybe beyond to redefine redefine the agenda and then a strategy and action to make a bridge in that way so it's i think it's complement to your reflection but then we go on to our guests thank you Asriel. um should we continue in this direction for this round as well, the, something you picked up at the conference and, too, sure. and reflections afterwards, perhaps? Uh, yeah, thanks for getting us started with this. I didn't go to this um, session you, you mentioned, but I, I read a lot about um, situation in, in India with solar parks and wind parks and this land acquisition, the problematic land acquisition and, and bribing and, and so on. So that is uh, definitely a big issue. And um, I would agree with what you said that... Um, a lot of um, locals, all the movements on the ground, they they react. Um, they they oppose not so much. Um, well, well, global capitalism mostly, or just foreign companies um, coming in. So that's something that was a reoccurring theme, I think, for me during different sessions. Mm -hmm. A lot of people observed that that it's not so much um, capitalism in general, but it's the global capitalism. Um, so the kind of uh, the message seemed to be that as long as it's kind of our entrepreneurs, our companies making uh, car batteries or something, then we're fine with it. But it's just the, the big American companies, the, the foreign capital. Um, mm. That's what these, uh, most of the far-right movements that were mentioned, uh, they, they were opposing to. Um, and I would somehow like to also refer to what, uh, as Real said about our role as uh, researchers and, and generating knowledge and relaying this knowledge to society, because I was kind of, um, maybe not, trolling the sessions <laughs> but uh, in the most of the sessions i attended i was asking the the question of what, what is the the purpose of us um labeling uh these movements as, as far right and uh, coming up with these categories um because for me it's i guess that kind of touches on what's our uh, aim and and doing this uh, research uh, are we trying to build solidarity build alliances or are we trying to um, kind of make, I don't know, strict categories so that we know which movements not to engage with. Because I guess uh, that's the danger for me of very strong labels. If we label a movement as uh, far right, then um, then perhaps we shouldn't um, engage with them. Um, so it's kind of like, where's the line? Um, yeah, that was kind of the reoccurring uh, theme for me. Like, what's 
what happens, what's the implication of doing this kind of diagnosis. Um, but then also there was a lot of talk about the implications of going of doing uh, what I call good vibes only research. So when you just focus on the positive and like, okay, let's focus on what we have in common and unite different movements, then perhaps you could invite movements with problematic uh, political agendas. Um, but then if you go the other extreme and you categorize, diagnose them as far right, then there is no room for dialogue. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't have a, an answer, but that was mm. the, <laughs> the recurring question I had. Mm. Yeah, and a very short comment on that is that I also realized, maybe this is a very basic thing, but making a study of party manifestos online or if they're in print, compared to doing like a long series of interviews, or like we talked about, Ryan, if you do an anthropological field work over two, four years, whatever is feasible, uh, you find very different things. Maybe they're complementary, uh, that they can kind of help and broaden the picture. But if you're only looking at what is written in party manifestos, for example, or if you follow up with like what is said in media by party representatives, you get a very limited kind of vision that kind of it's the same thing you're saying as well, that, that mm. it becomes something that is very other and not maybe something... Because I think the key aspect, and I think also what the conference aimed at and maybe the research aimed at is, I mean, you want to understand something so you can also maybe change it Maybe the change part is not so explicit, but at least that's for me. If I if I understand something better, you can find openings or ways to change yourself, or maybe change others as well. Mm. Do you want to? Yeah, yeah. Continue I'll, the round. I'll do that. I'll follow on from what Cosma just said. I think because some of the same issues actually sort of stayed with me after the conference, but also I think in general these this categorization that can be very difficult and it was also very obvious during the conference that people were struggling with this there were a lot of questions asked definitional questions people mm -hmm. wanting answers like what does this mean how do we think about these things how how do we use these things so i also felt like that was a um, sort of part of the atmosphere almost of like the whole conference people trying to conceptually capture things in a good way mm -hmm. um but I also think, um, speaking of climate change, I also found it really interesting, sort of the contrast between the far-right sort of outright denialism of climate change and also this sort of eco-modernist approach to it, mm. that the solutions given once climate change is incorporated into sort of like a, a political agenda on the far-right, it's often very eco-modernist. Mm. But in sometimes, in other times, it's very sort of like localist, very like purist in a way. Hmm. Uh, and I attended many of the overlap sessions that mm. were called overlaps between mm. left and right uh, sort of political agendas. And then there were a lot of discussions about like when we have two movements who are sort of, um, yeah, but just opposing the global neoliberal capitalism, but for two different reasons. Mm -hmm one for very anti-democratic sort of like from a mm -hmm. very anti-democratic sort of rationale how do we deal with that do we how do we deal with this endpoint being not the same but mm. similar for different reasons and like that was sort of something that i i think i come across that in my own work also quite mm. a lot um so i think that was also something that stayed with me and that i really yeah that i'm still struggling a little bit with mm. uh, sort of like how to think about these it's also, I guess, dangerous to, to say that there are overlaps because they're not really. But I mean, when the mm -hmm. outcome is, is, um, is uh, sort of the opposition of the current system, it mm. becomes uh, yeah, tricky to deal with. Mm. And uh, yeah, and I think also what you just said, Cosma, about this, um, this sort of, um, I don't even know what to call it, but maybe like, this risk of your own arguments being co-opted mm -hmm. for other reasons than you meant them to be used for. I think that was also something I was thinking about in terms of what was the aim of the conference. Because mm. I think to navigate these issues, you also need to know mm. Uh, mm. how things are thought about mm. in different ways. Mm. And especially when it comes to, to the far right, as we see movements across Europe and mm. other parts of the world really gaining ground. So I think... Yeah, I think those were my main takeaways. Hmm.
Yeah, and it's very interesting, the session on Latin America, uh, and specifically Uruguay, one of the, or the biggest far-right nationalist populist party, they had integrated a kind of anti-globalist stance, but especially also to uh, uh, forest companies coming in and with these paper mills, especially from Finland as well. So, But that was also because the left had kind of abandoned that issue of being like, well, protecting nature, but also protecting people's and workers' rights. Um, I'm making an extension of <laughs> the argument that was made there or the presentation. But So then that space opened up for, for the far right, and it was a they were part of the government coalition now, I think, or maybe historically, a couple of years back. But anyways, the environmental and forest protection was like a deal breaker for them. So if that hadn't been instituted, they wouldn't have been part of the government and they wouldn't have been that government so that was very interesting because then also for me i realized that if nature protection and the far right is not in opposites that opens up a whole different space but also the the failure of centrist or leftist or traditional right politics opens up a space for all sorts of parties from all sorts of mixes or left right or whatever scale we can use and maybe the scale is just <laughs> broken mm. uh, as it is now as well yeah. Ryan? Yeah. Um, it's a lot to think about, isn't it? I guess one one thing that I was struck by um, was the amount of political science. Like, I didn't expect so many political scientists there. I guess it makes sense on reflection, but it's interesting how they trans... Like, they use this word ecology, which I've come with my own baggage... Mm. Uh, and they use it in a in a very different way to the way that I would usually think about it. Because for me, ecology is a very relational concept. And as we're kind of saying a little bit, it seems like they're trying to categorize the far right and study it almost independently as a as an essence on it uh, unto itself. Um. So I think this is sort of leads to what you were talking about with the sort of focus on linguistics and sort of abs abstracting it. Uh, very much from its from its context, but it also strikes me as as kind of interesting. Yeah, I, I'm in my thesis. I draw a lot on Karl Polanyi. I'm sure you're familiar with Karl Polanyi. And Karl Polanyi always saw social movements in reaction to a greater force, and he was and so, so in his case, it's laissez-faire capitalism, free market capitalism, and to me, neoliberalism is essentially the same thing, and it's striking. I think that um, they can isolate the far right and study how you know develop the different language or, or or study the different language, which is used to uh, describe them in an effective way. But they don't see them as a reaction to this very very potent force of neoliberal globalization, which has basically colonized most of the world, destroyed the capacity of welfare states and and public institutions across the world to control and to use land use language, embed the market in social relations and subjected vast amounts of the world to the rule of capital and the market. So if if people in our position don't also understand that context, I think it's very dangerous because it's very easy to see them as a, yeah, as a binary thing, as a good evil kind of representation, which we should be trying to get away from. And then to, to just say something about your uh, comments on combination of Hindi nationalism and environmentalism it also makes I think what you're talking about is reciprocity a little bit as well like having some justification for being able to build something mm. uh, in in the environment where they don't live and that's one of the things that is you know a decontextualized economic analysis doesn't take into consideration the very anthropological fact of reciprocity being foundational aspect of social relations but it does make me think about what offsets are in that context because aren't offsets a perfect representation of the temple mm. in our world where we can just build something and we say, well, we can counteract that by mm -hmm. building something or, or protecting something somewhere else. Mm. And it re I think it really, it really represents the fact that we, our religion is mathematics. Mm. <laughs> our religion is... Uh, some sort of equilibrium, which mm -hmm. is very much the thinking of of economics. So I think that's also would be something very mm. interesting to think about in terms of a religion, like uh, thinking about it in terms of religion or um, 
yeah, probably religion or spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's all, then the temple for a capitalist uh, becomes the kind of the the wind power mills or the solar cells uh, or the solar plant becomes like a symbol of success and progress. For an environmentalist, it becomes this. This is the new kind of shiny energy infrastructure mm-hmm. that can kind of solve all our problems or at least a lot of them. Um, but then it depends, I mean, or for me at least it is, what kind of other politics does there exist that is not the eco-modernistic build a new infrastructure or the neoliberal capitalist model? <laughs> and I don't know if localism <laughs> is it doesn't necessarily have to be anti-capitalistic or anti-new in- energy infrastructure, but yeah. I don't know if you have a comment on that. And then I'll let you in, Asrib. Yeah, I can just come in shortly because I know that Cosma went to the same session as me on degrowth, Mm -hmm. where they actually had a lot of speakers talking about how these, um, some of these movements actually are against just free market capitalism in in the very degrowth sense of like degrowing Mm -hmm. to social relationship exchange and really like rebuilding social bonds to each other Mm -hmm. in like a very local setting in keeping exchange to this very small uh, sort of like bounded area. So in that sense, uh, it turns out that some of the the groups that were discussed actually are both local and against Mm. local capitalism in its very essence. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, that was kind of something that opened my eye a bit too, because maybe I was a bit naive before. I thought, okay, anything local is of course good. And, and again, this kind of categories, good, bad, come into play, like how, how I categorize them myself. And then, yeah, there are these degrowth local movement that uh, are deeply um, racist and um, exclusionary. And uh, they also kind of, uh, what's interesting that spirituality also uh, is at play there because they um, reject Christianity as the, the first um, colonization of Europe, so they want to return to to paganism. So that was mm. super interesting mm. for me. Okay. It's kind of yeah, local yeah. racist paganism. Um, mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, let's get back to that thread. Um, but Asriel, just hang on a second, and I'll let you in. <coughs> By now, there are different <laughs> different um, <coughs> subjects to address. If we take uh, spirituality we see a politicization of religion. Um, The Pope is now ecologically and climate friendly. He writes this encyclical, but on the extreme right of the Catholic Church, like Opus Dei and Vox, in a more militant way, they uh, attack the Pope. So it's not common front, so to speak. So for Modi and his kind of Indian nationalism, fundamentalism, not to forget that he was a Hindu fundamentalist that killed uh, Gandhi. So Modi himself, he's managed to skip so far, but this empirical growing documentation that he was behind the wave of um, anti-Muslim racist riots, uh, murdering, burning, and so on and so forth. He, yes, he controls the press. This is anti-Modi press. So this thing about point-counterpoint, where we try to categorize and do our conventional research, I see the populist pundits, because they have intellectuals like Steve Bannon doing the interpreting and giving the lines for action, the strategies, successfully so, in the States, in Europe, and so on. So I would say the... the contemporary paradox is that everything is being politicized and polarized. So religion and spirituality is one. But let's take terms like democracy. Today, 
our Nazis don't call themselves national socialists. They call themselves Sverige Demokrater, Swedish Democrats. The more Nazi call themselves national Democrats because democracy today has a, a, a linguistic value. Uh, in um, Spain, they created and then collapsed. It was too much a balloon in the air. Ciudadanos that use the same democratic rhetoric. We are the real citizens. Okay, so it's we are dealing with a phenomena, and I don't think political scientists are good, especially good at that. Um, we're dealing with the realm of propaganda and counter propaganda of cultural warfare. Um, and and we are not there. We are not there. And we can see that we are not even responding to the multiplicity of fronts opened by uh, a more solid, maybe better finance, has think tanks, yes, which is an important topic. They have think tanks, they're then thinking and then helping their non-thinking and just following what Trump says, like a sect. So we're dealing with something that is not so rational, um, it's not so easy to categorize in academic uh, definitions or concepts or terms. Um, so I will finish this kind of reflections on the spot saying we need think tanks to be able to grasp not just the structural, historical, you know, 500 years or 6,000 years like Fabian Scheitler rising the end of the mega machine. Um, but we need to also to be doing day-by-day -day analyzing uh, like Tim Rodas in Stockholm like all these multiple think tanks are doing. And then something that links to what Ryan brought. Okay, so we academics, we want to be engaged, we want to be relevant and meaningful. And then how do we balance these roles as researchers and as citizens? And my perception, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that playing the academic game is almost like a self-fulfilled prophecy. It's like, you know, uh, looking at your belly button. Um, there's not much time left for uh, other kinds of civic engagement, meaning citizenship, engage citizenship, in this case, for the climate. It's more like an invitation to move beyond this trap. I see it as a trap, as a time trap. Thank you, Cyril. Uh, a lot of different things there, but populism, um, or I'm thinking also, and this is one of the reflections from the conference, is like how, how would the, because if you accept the kind of premise that the left or the middle or whatever we're talking about, or like country institutions like the university or other parts, uh, uh, that they have kind of abandoned certain spaces uh, where the populists have moved in, um, whether it's tech and surveillance in society, or it, there's a long list of at least CMS issues that have been part of CMS courses um, that I don't know if it's been abandoned in the courses. Um, some of them, it might be harder. But what I'm thinking is basically, what would a populist version of science or doing research look like or in sam's case with education i mean it is populist in the sense that it's student initiated courses so it has that populist lean um but i'm thinking also with our like you said as real our responsibilities as researchers but also as citizens in all of this because if everything was kind of if this was a very slow moving like set of disasters evolving over 10,000 years, we would have a lot of time. Um, and maybe rushing into things is not the best things. But um, anyone help me out with this? 
thread on threads and also what Cyril said. Yeah, I mean it's a <laughs> it's a it's a it's a big topic. It's something I'm thinking about since I started this PhD, the role of researcher and this uh, question of uh, navel gazing and and just producing kind of science for the sake of science and having lots of stimulating debates. Um, because uh, yeah, that, that's something that I'm constantly reminded of, uh, even by my supervisors when I write. Uh, just kind of remember about your role. You're a researcher. You're not an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, you're writing for a scientific journal. Um, activists are not going to read it. Probably um, citizens are not going to read it. It's just other researchers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of writing for the community of researchers. So I have to constantly, and it's. It's a valuable reminder and also, I guess, a lesson in, in humility because you kind of have to be aware of what you can achieve uh, within the constraints of academia. Mm. Um, while at the same time, I think it is worth to like try to expand it and maybe bring something into academia that's not traditionally had place in academia. Like uh, there's m- more talk about uh, militant anthropology and activist research and, and things like that. So I think these are uh, valuable insights. But I, um, yeah, I think um, I think what what I'm thinking about is also this uh, relationality that uh, Ryan mentioned. That uh, ecology is, is uh, first and foremost about uh, relationality, and I would agree with that. So in my research, I'm trying to foreground these uh, interrelations, uh, whatever different groups, social groups have in common, what uh, uh, and how it can be mobilized productively, generatively to to build a movement, to um, to do something new, to kind of um, build dialogue across differences. Um, and I think that's difficult if we focus on on categorizing and if we focus on um, yeah creating these um, or, or maybe not creating divisions, but kind of re- reinforcing them. I think there is a lot of talk in academia uh, when you study ecological issues and sustainable development issues uh, about what concepts to choose, whether you're going to go for historical materialist uh, approach and that way you're clearly political, uh, you're on the um, correct side of of things and and so on, but then if you go for some more post-humanist, post-modern concepts, then you being accused of being apolitical, focusing too much about on non-humans and and um, yeah nature, and then yeah you risk uh, re- disadvantaging humans. So it's kind of like I guess that's something that I'm struggling with because I I would like to think that there is a way of doing both, of combining both, or finding uh, the niche in between, or maybe not even. Um, kind of entering this debate, maybe just doing something uh, alongside this debate, uh, outside this debate, and then focusing on this relationality with the purpose of um, yeah, building something together uh, rather than um, finally deciding which approach is uh, best. Thank you. Yeah, I think, I, think um, I don't have much to add, I think, because my capture did very well, but I think this is for me also a constant identity crisis and will <laughs> remain that way, I think. But I also come from having worked a lot with scholar activists in different mm. ways and I think that's a very productive way of sort of like reconciling activism and academia, but it will also be I think for me working in interdisciplinary settings is also a challenge in this way mm. because sort of blending and mixing together natural science and social science is sometimes a struggle in the sense that it's an ontological fundamental difference sometimes. Mm. And it's hard to navigate that as someone wants to do both in a way. But I think also um, that we, of course, need critical research in all, <laughs> all areas of society for, for different sort of, yeah. Of course we need that. But I also think um, there was something else you said, Cosma, that, that stuck with me. I think... Um, um, yeah, but just I, I just feel like to have a productive political sphere, whatever that is, I think research is fundamental in that way also because of time. Because I feel like there in academia, there's <laughs> we might not feel that there's time, but there's at least time to look into things in a different way that I feel like a lot of um, 
NGOs and a lot of people that are actually trying to achieve some sort of change are always struggling <laughs> in terms of having funding and having enough resources to actually be able to do that. So I feel like there are also synergies that could be harnessed and explored in many ways, I think. I think the one thing that, um, or maybe the two things that help me to like not worry about the distinction between those two as a, like a strict distinction, being a scientist, which I don't even categorize myself as a scientist. I study philosophy. I'm a philosopher. Um, so is um, the idea of objectivity being something abstract, as though I'm looking at something that I'm, that I'm completely independent from? I think that's a particular conception of objectivity, which isn't the only conception. To me, objectivity is about integrating multiple perspectives, taking them all into account and trying to give a full whole picture of a, of a situation. Um, and also to try and open up more possibilities for action. So it's, about, so it's about being critical. Objectivity is about being critical. And then the other thing is about, <clears throat> I'm not just a philosopher, I'm a particular kind of philosopher, process philosopher. So I see myself as in a tradition and continuing a tradition of thought. And I believe that universities benefit from traditions arguing with each other. <laughs> so I think that people benefit from being aware of the, of the different traditions that they're part of. Um, and often they come into conflict. Often you've got to work out ways to synthesize them. Often there's weaknesses in both. So if we have an argument, Cosmo, Cosmo sorry, um, you cause me also to reflect on my tradition and see its own weaknesses and develop it. So I, I become part of the tradition and further the tradition. So that's very much how I see the potential for academia. Um, and for, for me, uh, my tradition is questioning the mechanistic worldview and trying to raise an alternative. So ecology is very powerful in that sense because studying relationships, that relationships are full of unpredictability, emergence, that are non-linear, all these sort of different things that are going on. So it's at the core of how I think about it is addressing sort of these issues. And then I, the other thought is just about democracy. Um, there's a great line, for, uh, there's a great title of a paper by Wendy Brown. It's called We're All Democrats Now. And she says, yeah, no matter who you ask across the world, any kind of populist, reactionary, liberal, conservative, we're all dem everyone classifies themselves as a Democrat. Demo democracies colonize the world. And yet the term has, she says, it's an empty signifier. Mm. It, it every, it's something that everyone can attach their hopes and dreams to, but it really amounts to nothing. And that's, this is what Orwell taught us. The ability to change, to transform words into their opposites. Uh, democracy is such a powerful conception if we understand its historical roots and what it means about having control, as a community, having control over your life, um, having some control over your life. Um, and But it's also a struggle to be able to have the understanding, um, develop the relationships, have the culture, et cetera, et cetera, to, to maintain it. And democracy just now has been seamlessly integrated with neoliberal economics. So you have an election every four years and they say, well, you elected us, so now we can do what we want for four years. And like Trump said on his, uh, what, what is his truth, truth <laughs> social media page, that the president must have the right to do whatever he wants to do in that four-year period uh, without any possibility of courts overriding him. Uh, otherwise, how could he possibly act at all? <laughs> it's like it's going back to kings because we have this idea of a democracy seamlessly connected also with massive concentrations of power. That's bizarre. That's the opposite of democracy. Mm. So we need to reclaim these concepts and the, and, the, and the historical meaning of them, but also be brave enough to redefine them or rethink them if, if that's necessary, if they've become ossified. Thank you. <clears throat> Just a short note on ecology and democracy. Um, ecology could be read like Hitler. We need Ukraine to produce food, then we will do war with the Soviet Union because we as the higher race uh, have the natural right, according to natural law, to occupy this for our existential um, survival, survival of the citizens. Um, this is like right Nazi reading of 
ecology. So we read ecology with also colored lenses, not with objective neutral categories. Um, so the democracy then comes with a, with a value, uh, demos, you know, puts equality in the picture for Hitler and social Darwinists like him, um, then the basic law is inequality, racial inequality, and so on. Um, and democracy brings the idea of fair distribution of resources, of um, more equal. So what is interesting when I saw at SLE how they were dealing with agroecology, there was a view of ecology as a kind of automatism, self-regulating, homeostasis. So whatever you do, the earth will be resilient enough to manage this new challenge to uh, natural survival, so to speak. Maybe not atomic warfare, which we have to face, but I thought one way to challenge this kind of ecological automatism, um, kind of holy homeostasis approach, is precisely through a participatory democracy, which is not the same as populist democracy. It's not, ah, they got more votes, that's what the people want, that's democracy. Democracy. No, you can again think through over uh, electoral democracy as the only way to 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 measure and to advance uh, democracy and, and so on. So, in a way, is how we read these concepts or disciplines that then will frame certain questions and certain methodologies and then gain certain results. So uh, when Ryan said, okay, I'm in philosophy. Well, we are all in philosophy. I mean, if we don't do the task of questioning our concepts, our terms, and see alternative ways to, to redefine them, to frame them, and just to shut my big mouth. Um, people like Freire, not only, but will say, yes, we need information. We need to read the context to understand, but what for? To keep it the way it is? To enlarge our curriculum? To project our career reason? To, to maybe fit information? For the powerful that already have lots of information about social control. And Frey said, no, we wish in our approach to science, academy, research, education, higher education, opera education, to transform a reality that is not natural, it's a constructed social, historical, political. Uh, a result of a process that needs to be changed because it favors, let's say, the 1% and misfavors the 99%. I'm exaggerating for the sake of the argument, but you get my point. Yeah, we should. And this is a perfect, everything you said, but also you, uh, Asriel, uh, because we've made a commitment in this podcast to be practical, not when we're in the podcast, but rather <laughs> divert our thinking towards that as well um, for me in the same as context I think the courses that we do and maybe also some of the events it's very much in the university uh, and it's in our heads maybe in part certain times in our feelings um, but it's not the, the percentage of course or the time spent by students in courses 
that is spent not in a traditional classroom or studying on your own or with yeah co-students yeah it's very low i would say um that goes for a lot of university education some of them have more practical components but i think that's a very concrete thing um and how it connects to all of this i think it's just basically if you spend time in other people's realities and everyday life you're gonna pick up different things and you're gonna also be much more humble about your analysis of what is wrong but also the solutions to to what is wrong um let's start with you ryan now and go the round backwards Mm. If you would pick up something practical uh, in general from this conversation or from the conference or these these things we've been thinking about, mm. uh, is there a to-do list? Well, the first thought, we can we can argue about democracy for a long time, but the key thing is that if it's written down on a piece of paper, it can mean a hundred, almost, maybe more, different things. Um, so doing linguistic analysis... <laughs> maybe isn't enough to understand what a party is all about or what a particular movement is all about. So maybe it's got something to do with, you know, trying to find ways to bring back some kind of, I guess I could call it a phenomenological perspective. Oh, I got that out. (laughs) Or or a hermeneutic perspective or a dialectical Mm -hmm. perspective, something, a gestalt even, a sort of foreground, background, something where there's a they're seen as a relationship between foreground and background a little bit more and something that can give a little bit more justification to yeah as you said anthropology study like embodied study in a physical environment in order to understand its dynamics and have a more nuanced and holistic picture of why certain things happen and then obviously perhaps develop um, better responses to those things that can be uh, not so conducive to extremist uh, activities. Mm. Uh, so finding ways to defend and support those kind of um, educational methods mm. is one initial thought that I had. How to do it? I need to get a job first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very practical. Um, and if I put it to you on the spot from your finished PhD and what you just said, yeah. uh, if you would translate that into a catchy course title, kind of the thing I did with the AI function. Yeah, yeah, okay. No sexy minors, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, embodying the self in a complex world of... No, I don't know. No. Um, <laughs> give me a minute to think about it. Okay. <laughs> we can come back to that. Now the rest of you are already churning on that question. Um, okay, Emmy, something... Something practical, uh, I think. Um, I think also just continuing to be very humble and in interrogating ourselves and the concepts we use and why we use them and how we use them and finding also just being, um, yeah, just self-aware and, as you said, kind of try to justify why we're doing what we're doing and defending that mm. at the same time as being. Because I think there's a danger in locking oneself in mm. and putting oneself in stark contrast to something else without being willing to mm-hmm. sort of like have a dialogue, not necessarily like person to person, but like mm. to confront oneself with other arguments and building one's own argumentation stronger in relation to that. So I think, um, yeah, not resisting completely discourse-wise, but to engage uh, and try to yeah, counter uh, and just keep discussing. Mm-hmm. I think it's great to have these discussions with, because I think for me the the um, conference sparked a lot of interesting discussions mm-hmm. afterwards, and things still keep popping up, and uh, mm-hmm. it was also interesting that it brought together, as all conferences do, I guess. But I felt this one in particular, people who attended for so many different reasons and from so many different mm-hmm. disciplines that you some questions were asked and you couldn't see where they were coming from mm-hmm. but then there was a very interesting answer given to it mm-hmm. so i think that was uh, yeah so just keep yeah and this podcast is a great example of mm-hmm. uh, yeah and also the during the conference i reflect on that the, the younger researchers i don't know if young is below 40 or <laughs> 30 or whatever but yeah people who had done a phd or were in their phds those were the uh, presentations and the discussions that were most impressive um, and I don't want to comment if they were not not impressive, the other ones, but the, the things that stuck with me was 
from young researchers, basically. Maybe we should also say that writing, doing research, uh, all of that is, or education for that matter, is also a very practical thing. I mean, it is actually engaging with something, you creating something. So, but yeah, maybe practical beyond the traditional things that we do. Um, do you have a catchy course title if you would translate your research or reflections in general from the conference or anything? I might need to get back to you on that one. I yeah. Think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I think what, what you just said, that there were like these young researchers, they uh, were the presented the most interesting um, research. I think that's partly due to um, what Ryan mentioned or advocated for this more embodied kind of research. So putting yourself out there. I think uh, these younger researchers, they um, leave the ivory tower. So it's not just kind of policy document analysis and, and writing up articles and then coming up with more policy recommendations, mm -hmm. but actually um, engaging with movements, uh, putting yourself out there. And I think that's what I that's what I like. That's that's my jam. I have anthropology, anthropology as a my background, so I like to view myself as a like sort of a sensor. Of course, not just an, an objective sensor. I don't insert myself in the situation and absorb what's happening, but I do it through my training, things I read, and so on. Um, so I think that's uh, that's one way of doing it. But podcasts and kind of bringing the results um, back into the public and society in general i think that's something we have to think about a bit more but also bringing the results back to um participants of of the research uh that's something i'm thinking about because it's not really something i'm required to do it's not part of the project it's not something i would get money for from university but that's something i would like to do to somehow bring all these uh, respondents together all the people that uh, gave me this knowledge and uh, put them together in a room or on an exhibition or something so that they can get to know uh, the results. So maybe that will be this populist uh, science making. <laughs> yeah. And course title, that's hard maybe. Course title? A populist course title. Yeah, or your yeah. research or reflections from the conference mm -hmm. or just anything. Make populist science great again. Yeah, that, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got one as well. Yeah. Uh, re-embodying re through decommodification, uh, de responding to neoliberalism through creative play. Mm. Mm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fancy, fancy title. It's a bit elitist, maybe. I mean, but I, did, yeah. I, did, I did think about it. I mean, I am elitist too. Mm. So. Yeah, maybe you also can ask the AI function to make something very academic into something very like populist and like appealing to the masses. Maybe that's an interesting home assignment mm. um, I haven't even used AI I can do all these great things I'm too scared of it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is scary yeah, yeah it it's is. scary and yeah depends on what you're you're asking for <laughs> what kind of yeah, images minus. yeah <laughs> can come up <laughs> yeah I'm putting quotes in there um yeah, there's a ton of other things as well. We're going to let you in at the end here, Ezreal, as well. Um, for If you have a brief comment, I'll, I'll do that now. Just hang on. Name of the course, Transformative Research and Higher Education. And a short comment. In your presentation, Cosmo, the distinction between the person and the racist, to be able to make this distinction both in research in um, in how we approach, how we relate, and then it has a, a potential of change through making enabling dialogue, and then through dialogue, the possibility of change. Thank you, Israel. Um, yeah, our time is up, um, and uh, we should also extend a. Uh, thank you to the organizers of the conference. There's not a lot of these conferences um, here in Uppsala or nearby, unfortunately. Over the years, I think before the pandemic, there was quite a few that had this mix and also different people and different researchers coming together. Um, but there haven't been that many, at least not here in Uppsala or nearby. So, so that's great. Um, yeah. So many different thoughts and things to build on, and maybe I should end on that as well, that uh, CMS always has an open door to any strange or 
<laughs> or, or simple ideas uh, of things you want to do. And also, also, as you've seen today with all the tech, where you have also great opportunities for recording, whether it's like things like this or video and other things. But there's also resources over at Lawson Hoos in the recording studios. Um, and also, um, usually if you do a YouTube video and your name is not one of those that is highlighted by the algorithms, you get like 20 views. Um, but at least then you have 20 people engaged in, <laughs> in that thing. Um, but you could also engage other people uh, like Kevin Anderson, who's here and visiting researcher. Because if you put up a video with his name and he's in it, you get like seven, 8,000 views. So, so we can think of smarter ways also in engaging in communication. Um, because that's also one thing the populists and the far right has been very, very successful in, in communicating and actually reaching certain issues that engage people out there as well. So, but again, thanks everybody, and um, that's a wrap. Thanks for today. Thank you.